I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. I'm delighted to welcome Lincoln Project co-founder Rick Wilson back to the podcast today. Thanks so much for joining me, Rick. Happy to be with you. Rick uh, is also, of course, author of Everything Trump Touches Dies, uh, and you can check that out wherever you get your books. Rick, how do you think the Democrats, with their one-seat majority, can best maneuver in effectively neutering McConnell going forward, both with the impeachment uh, conviction and legislatively? Well, you have to separate out the impeachment conviction vote because Republicans are in a category now of collapsed moral failures where they actually view their opposition to holding Trump to account as a as a net benefit to them, either personally or politically or morally. Uh, I, I, as everyone with a brain knows, they, they're wrong about that, but you can't, you can't, undo the spell he has cast on them when it comes to that issue. Um, I will say that it is that it is a very uh, disheartening time if you're a Republican senator who's not an insane person because you're terrified Trump will someday, somehow, some way get Twitter back and get you primary. And if you're a Republican senator, that's not really the worst bet in the world. But it's an immoral bet, and it's a it's a sign of enormous personal cowardice that not one of them, beyond Mitt Romney, will really stand up and say he deserves to be convicted. Uh, he was right to be impeached a second time. And he deserves to be convicted, and we must cast this vote to ensure that Donald Trump can no longer destroy the um, destroy the the underpinnings of the United States. With respect to impeachment, with the five Republicans who joined the Democrats in moving forward, with the rest um, joining Rand Paul in uh, the idea that it was unconstitutional, um, and the fact that McConnell was not among those five, do you think that that means that all the reporting that was done to suggest he was open to conviction was bunk? Yeah, I, I do. I think McConnell's in a very tough bind. If he allows the impeachment to go forward, uh, you will get the emergence of a large number of hardcore Trump voters. Um, and those hardcore Trump voters uh, will very much be of an inclination um, to burn the system to the ground. And they will they will put up people like Jim Jordan in Ohio. And McConnell's majority will go grow further and further into the into the horizon. Um, the difficulty that that McConnell faces is he understands that power is the only currency that that drives him. Control is the only currency that drives him. And so we're in a situation where no one uh, who who has observed Mitch McConnell over time believes anything is important in but the majority. If he understands that the majority is at stake, he may he may have cast that vote tactically, but I'm not sure he understands that anymore. So now expansively, when we think of the Democrats' one-seat advantage and their majority, what do you think would be most effective legislatively for them to do to expand their majority in 2022? For the Republicans, the battle will still be the overing of Trump. For the Democrats, the battle will be the 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 role uh, they play in the coming months in the mitigation of COVID. If there is a 
serious and focused effort on on COVID. If they become branded as the party that took on COVID and took on the economic impacts of COVID, uh, I think their chances in 2022 are, uh, are appreciably higher. If it becomes the woke Olympics of how are we going to pass the next, you know, thing that 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 motivates the AOC faction of the party, um, and at, at the expense of dealing with COVID, I think they will have a more difficult time. So it, it appears, based on Mansion and Cinema's votes, that they will opt only or be able only to achieve legislatively through reconciliation in any events. And most of the AOC-oriented reforms would require a filibuster-proof supermajority. Uh, but this majority, Rick, is quite tenuous. It's one seat. Uh, it's quite precarious. So it's not impossible that McConnell could become majority leader again over these next two years. Not impossible at all. In fact, you know, look, Patrick Leahy's in the hospital right now. We don't know. And look, politics is full of of moments where, you know, some externality upsets the whole chessboard. We may well hit one of those externalities. We may well find ourselves. But then it will be Mitch McConnell with a one-seat majority, and there will be Republicans in that one-seat majority who are uncomfortable, who are in the mansion and cinema category, but on the other side. Because McConnell has lost something very important to a lot of these members. And he's losing it every day. He is losing the ability to say, I will go to corporate America and I will raise enormous sums of money that will allow your races to be completely funded, that will allow the super PACs that I control to run effective campaigns on your behalf, that is a that is a declining asset in in Mitch McConnell's universe. He can't make those claims as handily uh, and as readily as he would have uh, even a few weeks ago, because the corporate pressure campaign that has come out to really batter down um, the, these ideas that Mitch McConnell's caucus is not filled with seditionists like Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz, that is not filled with with people like Rick Scott, who was a champion of the new Jim Crow movement and attempted uh, as one of the members on the floor to overturn the Electoral College results, which would have resulted in tens of millions of African-American voters being disenfranchised. So there are a lot of difficulties that they face um, that, that don't make them a normal caucus anymore in the way that it was before. When McConnell could say, hey, no problem, I'll drop $25 million in your race, you know, that gave people a sense of, okay, things are under control. Um, but now he can't say that. That's not a possi- in, the, in the space of possibilities anymore in the way that it was. He's under enormous financial pressure right now. And it's going to be real hard for Rick Scott to go to Wall Street and say, hey, pony up your $25 million for the committee. I need your $10 million. I need $5 million from you and your board. It's not going to happen that way. Knowing what you've learned about your accomplishments at the Lincoln Project in the congressional races, specifically Senate elections of Democrats, uh, Arizona being chief among them, um, and also knowing the failures in, in Maine, you know, where Susan Collins' cult of personality prevailed over a huge amount of, of financial support and a, a well-liked and known candidate in Sarah Gideon. What have you learned about how you proceeded in 20 
that will help in your efforts to derail sure. the seditionist campaigns in 22? Well, we have we were successful this in the 2020 cycle in winning four U.S. Senate races, which is a pretty good track record when you get right down to it. We did invest in Maine. Um, the the fascinating story of Maine that it hasn't been widely reported yet is that on election day, Susan Collins uh, sat with her campaign staff, her pollsters, her 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 advisors, and they said, "We're sorry, we didn't make it. You're going to lose by five to seven points." That's what every public poll was showing. Every private poll was showing. That's what our information was showing. Our metrics and our and our polling was showing. Um, and that's still a black box I haven't had time to tease apart yet. Um, you know, our numbers were bang on in a lot of other places. We knew how Colorado was going to end. We knew how Arizona was going to end. We worked early to poison those wells, and we did. Um you know, we spend about 12% of our resources on the Senate races this last year. And, you know, obviously the focus will be much more in the Senate space in 2022. And we believe that the map could well be upset by some decisions that happened well before then. Uh, we believe Josh Hawley should be and stands a meaningful chance of being expelled from the Senate uh, because of his role in the, in the uprising. Uh, we believe that Ted Cruz could meet the same fate. We believe Rick Scott will not remain as the chairman of the NRSC once Wall Street becomes aware of his role in the, the Jim Crow caucus. So we think there are a lot of, of, of things in play before the 2020 cycle really heats up. And we do think there are going to be a lot of uh, difficulties for the Republicans because it's a tough map. It's not a trivial map. It's not a, it's not a red map in 2022. It's going to be tough. There are going to be some really hard races and, and I think what you're going to see um, is, is that the presence of the Trump vote uh, in those races um, is going to be very tough for a lot, of these, a lot of these seats that are going to be up for grabs in places that have shifted in their demographics. It's going to be much harder to say, oh, a Trump-style a Trump candidate is the kind of person who's going to win in Pennsylvania or a Trump style candidate is the kind of person who's going to win, you know, in any state that isn't deep red. And those Trump style candidates have an enormously good opportunity to, to capture a, to capture a, a, a primary winning majority or plurality at least. Uh, and I think it's going to be a very difficult, it's going to be very difficult for them to overcome the Trumpers in their midst to field viable candidates. I mean, if you have Ohio and it's and it's and it's Jim Jordan versus a moderate Democrat like Tim Ryan, I like our chances. How involved do you think Trump and and company are going to get in the twenty two Senate elections? That will depend on how profitable they believe it to be. I think the number one thing driving Trump right now is a desire to protect himself financially and politically. Um, and, and the, and, um, and the desire to be in the spotlight, the desire to aggrandize his ego, the desire to be seen again as the centerpiece of American politics. 
So you you said how involved he becomes depends on how profitable it is, and and what right. and so that's why your work um, to take the profit out of Trumpism at the Lincoln Project is so important. But how how profitable do you think it will be? I think Donald Trump estimates he can pull in two hundred million dollars a year um, off of you know grifting his grifting his supporters. Donald Trump's business model is now not about um, building office buildings, not about um, not about um, creating uh, golf resorts. His business model is now an online email list. And that email list is used to suck money out of his former supporters, his current supporters. Who do you think are, regardless of how uh, Trump or his family campaigns in 22, which Republicans do you think are, or which seats do you think are most vulnerable to Democratic capture? Well, look, we're going to have a, we're going to have a real scramble, I think, in North Carolina. Uh, that is a, a state that has been trending much more purple. Uh, Laura Laura Lee Trump may run in that race uh, in the Burr seat, um, and I think that could be a very a very chaotic race. I think Ohio, although Ohio is a red state, uh, I think if it's Jim Jordan and it will be Jim Jordan, um, it is going to be certainly something that's wide open to um, to to a, a moderate candidate like a Tim Ryan. Uh, you also have a lot of races up. You know, you've got Florida. If Ivanka Trump primaries Marco Rubio, that becomes a competitive race. If it's just Marco, I don't think it's as competitive. I don't think it's. I don't think it's got as much play. Um, you know, you've got Arizona, you've got Nevada, you've got New Hampshire. Uh, all those are going to be in play. Vermont is going to be safe for Democrats. New York, Illinois. Uh, I think Washington and Oregon are both up and. Depending on Feinstein, either one or two California Senate seats. Um, so, you know, those are those are all places where the Democrats either hold or gain. But I think you know, watch Georgia. We have to go back into Georgia again. Remember specials uh, and resets. Uh, North Carolina is going to be a big fight. Florida is going to be a big fight. It leans red, but if it's Ivanka, I think you end up with a thing that recapitulates some of the energy and enthusiasm of the twenty twenty race. You are a Floridian, as Brian Williams said, consummate Florida man. Um, <laughs> for what it's worth. We close here on Florida. Um, who is most compelling for the Democrats? You've got Gwen Graham, you've got Val Demings, you've got uh, Nikki Freed. Those seem to be the... Perhaps- Listen, I would also watch for some outside plays in the Senate race. Um, you've got some other people that, that uh, I'm not ready to talk about yet, but who have some celebrity or have some other viability that may come into play. Uh, I would keep an eye on the fact that Florida, you know, on the Democratic side, they've had a long struggle building a good farm team. But I think they learned a very, very valuable, if painful lesson in 2020. Whoever their candidate is knows right now that the first order of business is to go down to Miami Stand in the middle of the Cali Ocho and give a speech that says, Fidel Castro was an inhuman monster who should burn in hell for all eternity. Screw socialism. I think they've gotten that message now. And, and it may seem facile and shallow and dumb, but the reality is very simple. 
That message killed Joe Biden's chances in this state. It was never, never assertively given the response it needed. And because of that, we find ourselves in a situation where, you know, it could have been a much easier race. There would not have been a big old, you know, two and a half months of pure chaos if that had been, if we had been able to put Florida in the bag early. Isn't it also really important to get organized? Uh, You had, of course, third party candidates disrupt Democratic prospects in recent gubernatorial and Senate elections. So know who you're running for governor, know who you're running for Senate. Of the three people that I mentioned, the conventional names that are speculated, two of those three, if they if they each ran, let's say, state agriculture Commissioner, let's say Nikki Fried for one post and uh, Val Demings or Gwen Graham for the other. That would that would be pretty formidable, wouldn't it? Look, I, I I like all those candidates. By the way, I've known Gwen for a long time. She's a great person, a tremendous person. Uh, Nikki is an up and comer. Val is extraordinary. All these cases, I think, are 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 important. Uh, breakthroughs on the on on the on the Democratic side, um, but it's going to be a long race, and I think you've got to look at who do you want to put in the governor's slot, who do you want to put in the Senate slot. Florida's going to be a big a big game this year. Do you have any natural inclination or intuition about who's appropriate or who's best for each one of those roles? I'll let that play out. I mean, there's discussion about David Jolly running. As an independent, in the last two cases of independent bids, they have hurt the Democrats. Is there a chance that he could run as an independent and help the Democrats this time or caucus as a Democrat and effectively be a Democrat? You know, David is a good friend. Um, David would mount probably the most serious and legitimate uh, independent campaign um, of our time. And he is an enormously popular figure statewide. He brings people together. Uh, he's very charismatic. I think you've got to keep an eye on that. I think one of the things to remember in Florida, you know, non-party affiliated voters are the majority now. They they are the fastest growing group. They 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 are the they, they, the parties that both have deficits um, that are meaningful, and so that's why we're seeing. Um, that's why we're seeing what's going on. Rick Wilson, co-founder of the Lincoln Project with insight and analysis, uh, always perspicacious. Thank you for your time today, sir.